This is a Federal News Network podcast. The federal government is so big, it's hard to get your arms around it. But the Deloitte Center for Government Insights has given it a try. Its latest government trends for 2022 observations are definitely worth reading. Joining me with a few of them, the center's executive director, Bill Eggers. Bill, good to have you back. It's great to be back with you again, Tom. And before we get into some of the observations that Deloitte has made here, just briefly give us the methodology by which you arrive at what you consider the top trends for the government. Sure. And this is our third edition of our annual government trends report, where we focus on what are the most transformative trends in government that we're seeing all over the world. And it's a kind of a massive research process that usually starts about nine, 10 months before the report comes out. And we crowdsource from colleagues all over the world in terms of what are the big things that they're seeing in their jurisdictions. And we also do interviews with dozens of different government officials. And this year we teamed up with Apolitical, which is an organization of over 150,000 government officials from all over the world, a lot of senior government executives. And then we take all of that, which oftentimes will be over a hundred different trends and we consolidate it into what we see as the 10 most transformative ones of the year. And this year we grouped them under three themes, uh, building resilience, where we're focusing on long-term resiliency to future shocks, uh, connected for greater value, which really looks at the overhaul and integration of structures, systems, data sharing to drive greater impact. And then lastly, government for all the people, uh, making programs and services truly equitable and inclusive. So the trends are grouped under those three major categories. All right. And would you say that looking at this, especially in the resilience area, that the pandemic has exerted what you might call permanent gravitational force on the way governments operate and the way they think about things? Oh, absolutely. And some of our two last trends reports really focused on that, which was all of the acceleration of every digital government and the use of AI and customer experience and cloud and so on for government, and of course, hybrid workplaces, and a lot of that being very permanent. So it really catapulted us into the future of government in a way that I, you know, I've been doing this for over three decades. I hadn't seen that sort of progress made so quickly any other time. And in some ways, the different buckets that you mentioned are interrelated because we had a lot of resilience in the way Congress and agencies could react over the couple of years of the pandemic, sudden new programs popping up for all sorts of things. But the connection for value may not quite have been in place for some of those, given what we're finding now about fraud, waste, abuse, improper spending, and the oversight of those in the U.S. government's case, trillions of dollars. Yeah, and I think that one of the big, broad themes we see across all these areas and the trends is this real big focus on public-private integration and the fact that so much of what government does right now, it does through partners, it does through NGOs, private companies, state and local governments, and so on and so forth. And that really rising in importance in terms of doing it well. And so much of COVID, of course, was that sort of integration and working across sectors. So that's another theme that goes across all of the trends and major themes. And it really highlights the importance of government really focusing on that as a core capability right now for senior government officials. All right. I wanted to delve into a few of the areas that look, inter well, they all look interesting, but a few that we can have time for today. One is reshoring and friend-shoring supply chains. Now, the government in the United States, and I guess this is the true of most normal democratic type of open governments, tend to source 
in country as much as possible to begin with. So tell us more about reshoring and friendshoring supply chains. Yeah, and reshoring and friendshoring goes well beyond what government is purchasing to looking at the overall supply chain in our country and other countries. And of course, we've all seen during COVID and then certainly now of these external shocks, which have created some real issues in terms of the supply chain. And so in response, governments are encouraging reshoring, which is boosting domestic production capability, especially in really essential sectors, such as semiconductors through a mix of policies, incentives and orders. But reshoring, while popular, has a lot of limitations. Some supply chains simply can't be fully reshored because the critical resources may exist globally in only one or two locations. And also the cost of replicating some of these supply chains domestically is likely to be larger than the entire global industry might be worth. An example is semiconductor manufacturing, where of course there was a, a bill before Congress to invest in this, but establishing fully domestic semiconductor manufacturing supply chains in the U.S. could cost up to a trillion dollars, which is more than double the value of the entire semiconductor market. So policymakers are increasingly looking to pair reshoring with friendshoring, which is a network of trusted suppliers from friendly countries that offer multiple independent supply paths. So friendshoring offers a clear path to improving both resilience of key industries while also supporting important international relationships with friendly countries like Australia, Canada, the UK, and so on. Yeah, too bad we can't drag Taiwan, the whole island, and move it in between New Zealand and Australia. But for the time being, that's a, a good friend-shoring supply. We're speaking with Bill Eggers. He is the executive director of the Deloitte Center for Government Insights and linked-up government because there is statutory, again, in the United States, and I imagine elsewhere, statutory mandates to link up government through the Data Act and different laws to try to assimilate and make sense of all of the information the government has. Well, you know, the notion of linked up government or sometimes called joined up government originally out of the Blair administration in the UK is, is simply around trying to arrange agency structures around problems rather than simply departmental boundaries and allows governments to better respond to complex societal challenges. And of course, as you mentioned, data sharing plays a crucial role in the silo hacking effort by becoming a really connected thread between agencies. And when you look at a lot of the daunting challenges our society is facing from unemployment to climate change, poverty, public health, homelessness, no single agency can address these alone. So the solution really does lie in collaborating across governmental departments and linking up through these joint efforts across multiple levels of government that have common missions and programs. And uh, from a federal perspective, uh, you know, a big example of this is the movement around having more life events-based service delivery right now, which was part of the uh, CX executive order and saying that there are certain life events that people have that require going through a lot of government hoops. And if you can link them up and make that much easier, you can really improve people's lives, make them easier. And that's everything from birth to early childhood development, to death, to starting a business, to retirement, and so on. So I see that as a really crucial thing. It's really hard to do well across multiple levels of government, that, but that's what it's required. And we see that as one of the biggest trends right now in digital government is that focus on life events, which Singapore originally came up with that idea about 20 years ago, Tom, all the way back in the dot-com era. And we're finally now seeing over the last 
few years, a lot of traction all over the world in that space. And that relates in some sense to the no wrong front door idea that is in the CX of the U.S. government trend right now. Yeah, and it goes to even more saying when you have a death in the family, it's very, very traumatic, obviously, but it can also take a lot of time to navigate through all the government agencies. And how do you do that in a way where that navigation becomes very easy and you offer up the information once and it's then shared to a lot of other government agencies? The UK, Singapore, a number of countries have done a really good job of taking all of those different transactions and putting them into one life event. Sure. Maybe someday we'll have a digital death certificate that would make families' lives a lot easier. And Government is catalyst for innovation. We've seen this deeply in the defense sector as yes. the nation seeks to regain the strategic edge and so forth, but also in energy and a lot of other domains that agencies are in to try to jumpstart these new areas, almost like back in the 50s, a return to. Well, I mean, if you think about some of our government's greatest achievements over the decades, it's been through playing this catalyst role rather than attempting to do all the heavy lifting on its own. Think about DARPA and the internet, think about GPS, even going back, as you mentioned, to the 1950s, the emergence of the nuclear industry was heavily facilitated by the Department of Energy and a variety of both funding things and regulatory things that they put in place. And what we're seeing now is this notion of government serving as catalyst, assembling and enabling multi-sector efforts to cope with the flood of COVID cases and create vaccines was a really good example of that. And so we're seeing this movement for government playing a catalytic role in innovation move past simply Department of Defense, Department of Energy to many other areas. NASA is a great example of doing this. They have people who are focused on looking at some of the most important critical technologies that NASA needs and to what extent then NASA can catalyze and help the development of those technologies. And NASA also uses its procurements to help scale and sustain companies that can help them deliver on their mission through their SBIR, their Small Business Innovation Research Program, and a number of other areas. So we see this government as a catalyst role being really, really important. It's also important as more and more innovation happens in the private sector with so much even basic R&D now being done outside of government grants, that it's increasingly important for government to be able to spin in innovation from the private sector, which is a big part of what the Defense Innovation Board, of course, is all about. All right. And then the final one I wanted to ask you about is reimagining social care. Pretty soon it's going to be a century of social security if the solvency can hold up that long and we're just on the doorstep of that landmark. And Deloitte is talking about reimagining social care as a major trend. Yeah, we put out several studies recently looking all over the world at some of the biggest developments we see right now around social care. The pandemic put enormous pressure on social care systems from unemployment insurance to mental health. And it's really compelled governments to re-examine how they provide equitable, seamless, and effective social care services. And so they're looking at doing a variety of different things, embracing much more integrated care, holistic, all-in-one supports around this. We're also seeing a big movement to eliminate what Cass Sunstein has called the sludge from government benefit programs, where how do you take a 50-page food stamp application and reduce it down to a page? And how do you make it easier to apply for 
earned income tax credit programs, or what we're seeing with the Medicaid program as they've used human-centered design to consider what are all the factors that keep members from renewing their benefits and thus losing their health coverage. And can we also use human-centered design to better understand in child support why some parents struggle to meet their support obligations and to create opportunities to help them. But we see a real reimagining of social care, bringing in a lot of these concepts of human-centered design and digital access that's much more equitable and trying to just reduce a lot of those barriers, both to benefits and to independence. Bill Eggers is executive director of the Deloitte Center for Government Insights. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me here, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to that 2022 trends at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure, thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right? To try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also 
reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, 
Let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. A financial plan isn't just about money. It's about what matters most to you, like protecting your family, supporting your community, and building a legacy for future generations. At Northwestern Mutual, we start with a conversation about the life you want to live now and years from now. Whether you're paying down debt, saving for college, or planning for retirement, we have an eye on your bigger picture. Get access to our financial expertise at harlem.nm.com. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, headquartered in Milwaukee, Wisconsin.